Chapter Sixteen, Part Four, of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume Two, by John Bagnell Bury. Chapter Sixteen, Part Four, The Advance of Macedonia. The Macedonian monarch was now master not only of the Thermaic Gulf and the mouth of the Strymon, but of the basin of Pagasae, and he was beginning to create a fleet. His marauding vessels, let loose in the northern Aegean, captured the cornships of Athens, descended on her possessions and dependencies. Lemnos, Imbros, and Oiboea, and once even insulted the coast of Attica itself. The most important interests of Athens centered round the Hellespont and Propontis, and it was obviously her policy to form a close combination with the Thracian king Chersobleptes, with a view to offering common resistance to the advance of the new northern power on the Thracian side. It was an effort in this direction when Aristocrates proposed a resolution in honor of Charidemus, the adventurer who had become the brother-in-law and the chief minister of the Thracian king. The resolution was impeached as illegal, and the accuser was supplied with a speech by the young politician Demosthenes. The legal objections were probably cogent, but the opponents of the proposal might wisely have confined themselves to this aspect of the question. They went on to impugn the expediency of the measure, and the speech of Demosthenes against Aristocrates was calculated, so far as a single speech could have a political effect, to alienate a power which it was distinctly the interest of Athens to conciliate. But it mattered little. No sooner had Philip returned from Thessaly than he moved against Thrace. Supported by a rival Thracian prince, and by the cities of Byzantium and Perinthus, he advanced to the Propontis, besieged Herion Tejos, the capital of Chersobleptes, and forced the potentate to submit to the overlordship of Macedon. The movements of Philip had been so rapid that Athens had no time to come to the rescue of Thrace. When the news arrived there was a panic and an armament was voted to save the Chersonese. But a new message came that Philip had fallen ill, then he was reported dead, and the sending of the armament was postponed. Philip's illness was a fact. It compelled him to desist from further operations, and the Chersonesus was saved. Eight years had not elapsed since Philip had mounted the throne of Macedon, and he had shifted the balance of power in Greece, and altered the whole prospect of the Greek world, for those who had eyes to see. He had created an army and a thoroughly adequate revenue. He had made himself lord of almost the whole seaboard of the northern Aegean, from the defile of Thermopylae to the shores of the Propontes. The only lands which were still accepted from his direct or indirect sway were the Chersonesus and the territory of the Chaldean League. He was ambitious to secure a recognized hegemony in Greece, to hold such a position as had been held by Athens 
by Sparta and by Thebes, in the days of their greatness. To form, in fact, a confederation of allies, which should hold some such dependent relation towards him as the confederates of Delos had held towards Athens. Rumors were already floating about that his ultimate design was to lead a Panhellenic expedition against the Persian king, the same design which was ascribed to Jason of Ferrae. Though the Greek states regarded Philip as in a certain sense an outsider, both because Macedonia had hitherto lain aloof from their politics, and because absolute monarchy was repugnant to their political ideas, it must never be forgotten that Philip desired to identify Macedonia with Greece, and to bring his own country up to the level of the kindred peoples which had so far outstripped it in civilization. Throughout the, his whole career he regarded Athens with respect. He would have given much for her friendship, and he showed that he deemed it one of his misfortunes that she compelled him to be her foe. He was himself imbued with great culture, and if the robust Macedonian enjoyed the society of the somewhat rude boon companions of his own land with whom he could drink deep, he knew how to make himself agreeable to Attic philosophers or men of letters whom he always delighted to honor. He chose an accomplished man of letters, Aristotle of Stagira, who had been educated at Athens to be the instructor of his son Alexander. This fact alone sets Philip in the true light, as a conscious and deliberate promoter of Greek civilization. Greece saw with alarm the increase of the Macedonian power, though men were yet far from apprehending what it really meant. No state had been directly hit except Athens, though the day of Chalcides was at hand, and it was now too late for Athens to retrieve her lost position, either alone or with any combination she could form, against a state which possessed an ample revenue and a well-drilled national army, under the sovereign command of the greatest general and diplomatist of the day. The only event which could now have availed to stay the course of Macedon would have been the death of Philip. But the Athenians did not apprehend this. They still dreamed of recovering Amphipolis. Their best policy would have been peace and alliance with Macedonia. There can be little question that Philip would have gladly secured them the Chersonese and their conships, for the possession of the Chersonese had not the same vital importance for him as Amphipolis, or as the towns around the Termaic Gulf. In these years Athens was under the guidance of a cautious statesman, Eubolus, who was a marvelously able minister of finance. He was appointed councillor of the Theoric Fund for four years, and this office, while it was specially concerned with the administration of the surplus of revenue which was devoted to theoric purposes, involved a general control over the finances of the state. He pursued a peace policy, yet it was he who struck the one effective blow that Athens ever struck at Philip, when she hindered him from passing Thermopylae. But Oebolus wisely refused to allow Athens to be missiled into embarking in unnecessary wars in the Peloponnesus or Asia Minor, and frankly accepted the peace which had concluded the war of Athens with her allies. 
the mass of the Athenians were well contented to follow the counsel of a dexterous financier, who, while he met fully all the expenses of administration, distributed large dividends of festival money. The news of Philip's campaign in Thrace may have temporarily weakened his influence. It was felt that there had been slackness in watching Athenian interests in the Hellespontine regions, and his opponents had a fair opportunity to inveigh against an inactive policy. The most prominent among these opponents was Demosthenes, who had recently made a reputation as a speaker in the assembly. The father of the Demosthenes was an Athenian manufacturer, who died when his son was still a child. His mother had Scythian blood in her veins. His guardians dealt fraudulently with the considerable fortune which his father had left him, and when he came of age he resolved to recover it. For this purpose he sat at the feet of the orator Isacus and was trained in law and rhetoric. Though he received but a small portion of his patrimony, the oratory of Demosthenes owed to this training, with a practical purpose, many qualities, which it would never have acquired under the academic instruction of Isocrates. He used himself to tell how he struggled to overcome his natural defects of speech and manner, how he practised gesticulation before a mirror, and declaimed verses with pebbles in his mouth. In the end he became as brilliant an orator as the Pnuks had ever cheered. Perhaps his only fault was a too theatrical manner. His earlier political speeches are not monuments of wisdom. He came forward as an opponent of the policy of Abelus, and so we have already met him supporting the appeals of Rhodes and Megalopolis. The advance of Philip to the Propontis gave him a more promising occasion to urge the Athenians to act, since their own interests were directly involved. And the effort of Demosthenes was more than adequate. The harangue, which is known as the first Philippic, one of his most brilliant and effective speeches, calls upon the Athenians to brace themselves vigorously to oppose Philip, our enemy. He draws a lively picture of the indifference of his countrymen, and contrasts it with the energy of Philip who is not the man to rest, content with that he has subdued, but is always adding to his conquests, and casts his snare around us while we sit at home postponing. Again, is Philip dead? Nay, but he is ill. What does it matter to you? For if this Philip die, you will soon raise up a second Philip by your apathy. Demosthenes proposed a scheme for increasing the military forces of the city, and the most essential part of the scheme was that a force should be sent to Thrace, of which a quarter should consist of citizens, and the officers should be citizens. At present the numerous officers whom they elected were kept for services at home. You choose your captains, not to fight, but to be displayed like dolls in marketplace. Demosthenes was applauded, but nothing was done. His ideal was the Athens of Pericles, but he lived in the Athens of Oibulus. In the fourth century the Athenians were quite capable of holding their own among their old friends and enemies, the Spartans and Thebans, and the islanders of the Aegean, with paid soldiers and generals like Iphicrates and Charis, they could maintain their position 
as a first-rate power. But against a large, vigorous land power, with a formidable army, their chances were hopeless. For, since the fall of their empire, the whole spirit of the people had tended to peace and not to war. They were no longer animated by the idea of empire, and the memories of the past, which Demosthenes might invoke, were powerless to stir them to action. The orations of Demosthenes, however, carefully studied, however imbued with passion, could not change the character of his countrymen. Their spirit did not respond to his, and, not being under the imperious dominion of an idea, they saw no reason for great undertakings. Nor was the condition of Athens as ill as the opponent of Eubolus painted it. Under the administration of Eubolus, the fleet was increased. The building of a new arsenal was begun, new shipsheds were made, and the military establishment of Athens was in various ways improved. She was still the great sea-power of the Aegean, and strong enough to protect her commercial interests. The next stage in the development of Macedonia was the incorporation of Chalcidice, and as soon as Philip recovered from his illness, he turned his attention to this quarter. If the Olynthians had treated Philip honorably, they would probably have been left a self-governing community, with their territory intact, dependent on Macedonia. But they treated both Athens and Philip badly. They first made a close alliance with Philip to rob Athens, and then, when they had received from Philip Antimus and Potidaea, they turned round and made peace with Athens, a power with which Philip was at war, and recognized the right of Athens to Amphipolis. At the time, Philip was otherwise engaged, but three years later he sent a requisition to Olynthus, demanding the surrender of his half-brother, a pretender to the Macedonian throne, to whom they had given shelter. The demand was refused, and Philip marched against Chalcides. One after another the cities of the Olynthian confederacy opened their gates to him, or, if they refused, like Stagira, they were captured. In her jeopardy, Olynthus sought an alliance with Athens, and on this occasion both the leaders of the Athenian assembly and the advocates of a war policy found themselves in harmony. It was during the debates on the question of alliance that Demosthenes pronounced his Olynthian orations, which were animated by the same spirit as his Philippic, and were in fact Philippics. At this juncture, the Athenians seem to have been awakened to the necessity of action, sufficiently to embolden Demosthenes, to throw out the unpopular suggestion that the Theoric Fund should be devoted to military purposes, and he repeats his old plea for citizen-soldiers. An alliance was concluded, and mercenaries were dispatched to the Chalcidian Peninsula under Charis and Charidemus, who had left the service of Chersobleptes. More troops would certainly have followed, and Philip might have been placed in some embarrassment, especially as Chersobleptes had rebelled. But he diverted the concern of Athens in another direction, and so divided her forces. He had long been engaged in intrigues in Oiboea, and now Eretria revolted and drove out Plutarch, the tyrant who held the city for Athens. Neighboring Chalcis and Oreos in the north followed the example, 
Oboea was in a state of revolt. It's just possible that, if Athens had left Oboea alone, and consecrated all her military power in Chalcides, she might have saved Olynthus for the time. The division of her forces was certainly fatal, and Demosthenes deserves great credit for opposing any interference in Oiboia. But the Athenians would have been strong-minded indeed, if they had done nothing, to regain the neighboring island, while they dispatched all their troops to succor an ally. The expedition to Oiboia, which was now entrusted to the general Phocion, might better never have been sent, but beforehand there seemed no reason why it should not succeed. Phocion's only exploit was to extricate himself from a dangerous position at Tamunae by winning a battle, but he returned to Athens without having recovered any of the rebellious cities. The enemy had taken a number of prisoners, for whose ransom Athens had to pay fifty talents, and it was decided that there was nothing for it but to acknowledge the independence of Eboea, with the exception of Charistus, which remained loyal. Meanwhile Philip was pressing Olynthus hard, and urgent appeals were sent to Athens. This time Demosthenes had his way, and two thousand citizen soldiers sailed for the north. But it was too late. Olynthus was captured before they reached it, and Philip showed no mercy to the city, which had played him false. The place was destroyed, and the inhabitants scattered in various parts of Macedonia, some set to work as slaves in the royal domains. The other cities of the Confederacy were practically incorporated in Macedonia, but they still continued to exist as cities and manage their local affairs. There was no question of their extermination. Demosthenes had opposed the expedition to Oiboea, and thereby hangs a story. He had a bitter foe in a rich man named Medias, who was a supporter of Oibolus. Their personal hostility was revakened by the debates over the Oiboean question, and Medias seized the occasion of the great Dionysiac feast to put a public affront on his enemy. Demosthenes had undertaken the duty of supplying a horus for his tribe, and on the day of the performance, when he appeared in the sacred robe of Ocoregus, Medias struck him in the face. The outrage involved contempt of a religious festival, and Demosthenes instituted proceedings against his insulter. The speech, which he composed for the occasion, contains fine sketching invective. The description of Medias vulgarly displaying his wealth may be quoted to illustrate contemporary manners. Where, Demosthenes asks, are his splendid outlays? For myself I cannot see unless it be in this, that he has built a mansion at Eleusis large enough to darken all the neighborhood, that he keeps a pair of white horses from Sicyon, with which he conducts his wife to the mysteries or anywhere else he fancies, that he sweeps through the marketplace, with three or four lackeys all to himself, and talks about his bowls and drinking horns and saucers, loud enough to be heard by the passers-by. But Demosthenes consented to compromise the matter for a small sum before it was brought to an issue, and there can be little question that his consent was given from political motives. 
On the capture of Olynthus, the different parties drew together and agreed to cooperate, and this new political combination rendered it necessary for Demosthenes, however reluctant, to patch up the foyer with Medias. End of chapter 16, part 4